How are you today? I am loaded for bear. <laughs> this is some place in Scripture, and I'm so glad you're with us this morning. Thank you for coming. For those of you that are here with us regularly, we've been going through the book of Revelation. We have come to an amazing place in Scripture, and we've just before the very essence of the new heaven and the new earth. But what we are going to see today, this week, this week we're going to get married. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. Hi, Brent. I can't wait. I sent you an email. Did you get it? Not yet. Oh, I sent you an email. I said, what a great week for a wedding. Yeah, Friday. Friday. You don't forget. Oh. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is um, an amazing place in Scripture. This place that we are in right now is the place where the heavens and the earth absolutely flee from the presence of our Lord. And if there is ever a place in Scripture, if you're here investigating uh, of, of who our Lord is and, and what he might mean in your life and, and how do you come to know him, we want to answer that we want to answer that query within your heart of hearts this this day. And and, and I, I want you to know that this is a very terrifying place in the Word of God for those who are still questioning their faith, those who are still wondering, am I a believer or am I not? And for those of us who know, we've, we've, we've come to that place where we've, we've made that commitment of our faith to Jesus Christ. This is, this is not so much a terrifying place for us as it is for those that we love so dearly who have, who have just decided to put off, put off, and put off this whole issue of who is Jesus Christ within our lives. I made mention last night, right around in the middle of the message, but I, I thought about it just now. You afforded me the opportunity of going to Texas a while back and to bury one of my dearest friends. And I had the, the chance to do that, and, and it was mm, maybe a month ago now, maybe less, but about that. And l yesterday was the first time I, I conjured up enough um, whatever to listen to the message, to listen to the tape they sent me of that day. And... Uh, after it was over with, it was, um, it was really kind of a time where, where I, I got a few questions from a few people. They came up to me and they said, how do you, one of the questions I had that was really penetrating to me is, how do you know? Why are you so strongly in belief? You know, because I was, I was there at the, at the memorial for Mel and I, I had my Bible in the air. I, told, I asked the guy that was in charge of the, the mortuary area, I said, can, can you get me a lapel mic, please? And he said, why? And I said, well, because I roam. I, I want to walk around a little bit. And he did. And, and so I was walking in front of people, and I was just holding my Bible up before them and saying, this is everything. This is the reason I've come from California to bury my friend. This is the reason I'm here, because I believe he has eternal life. And this life is in our son, Jesus Christ. And so they came up to me afterwards and said, why are you so certain? I mean, what if you're wrong? And I answered back to them, yeah, what if I'm wrong? I mean, I'm not God. I, I just know what I read and I know what I believe. And I know and I know, I know and I know within my heart this is true. But, yeah, what if I'm wrong? And I looked them in the eyes and I said, you know, I said, God has given me such a wonderful life. I love, where I, I love the church I'm at. I love the people. I love my wife so much. I'm very honored to be married to her. She's been a blessing all these years. And I, I love my kids and my kids are doing well. And, and, and 
and all of that, I said, you know, if, if I am wrong, I still wouldn't trade the way I'm living. I, I enjoy the, my lifestyle. And so they looked at me, okay. And I said, wait, what if I'm right? What if you're wrong? What, what is in store for you? That was the silence that I felt right here, right now. That was the same silence I felt when I asked that question. It was just a, a look of perplex, you know. Uh, what if I am wrong? I know they must be thinking. And so this is a place in Scripture for those of us who know. We know in our heart of hearts that we have made that commitment of our lives to Jesus Christ. It is a terrifying place, but not for us. It is a terrifying place for the people who have just decided to wait. Wait and get more information. Wait until... I don't know when to come to Christ. And, and, and as I said last night, I say to you today, you and I have no guarantee for tomorrow, let alone this afternoon, let alone this evening. We have no guarantee. I mean, something could befall us just that quickly. I mean, the, the only thing that you and I have is right now. This breath that I've just taken is, only, is all that I have. The next breath is up to God. To give it to me or not. It is just living for this moment and, and knowing who is Christ in your life this moment. And so we've come to a place in Scripture in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. Please turn there. The uh, seventh verse we're going to read to the end of the chapter. And then we go into the new heavens and the new earth. It is, this is now, from now on, it's all whipping cream on the Sunday. It is the best of the best. Although I don't like whipping cream, but I don't want anything to get in the way of my ice cream, you know. Um, so this is the this is the place where we where we look at the millennium, the end of the millennium. The millennium is the thousand year reign of Christ. People have asked me some questions. Those that went into the millennium were not the believers of today, nor the Old Testament saints, nor those that committed uh, those of of the New Testament and the Old Testament. They are not. The people that go into the millennium were the ones that we saw in chapter 12 that the Lord kind of put them off into a place where he protected them and nourished them for the last three and one half years of the, of the tribulation. They then ushered into the millennium all believers. But they lived for a thousand years, and as you recall, it's said that, that some, a youth would die at a hundred, and, and if someone died early, they would have figured that they were accursed. In other words, they lived long, and they, were, they had many children. And then what it was is for their children, who were born with the same sin nature that you and I have, then they had to commit their life to Christ. And those that did not, those who were born during the millennium, at the end of the millennium, as we're going to read in a moment, Satan is loosed, set free, and he deceives that number of people who did not believe. Not the believers. Can't deceive you and me. Can't deceive the believers. He deceived those who do not believe, and they make war against God. And as you're going to see, I think it's in the ninth verse or something like that that we're going to read today, the, the finality in their lives is just, just, there is nothing said about it except that fire fell down from heaven and they were devoured. That's it. It is over. And this is a very abrupt ending in the Word of God of those who didn't believe, and it is the end of life as we know it. 
It is the end of, of this wrestle match that we as believers have with our sin nature, and, and, and it'll be a place where we will be with our Lord forever and ever. We have come to the judgment throne, the judgment seat of an almighty God, our Lord and Savior, in this case, Jesus Christ, because God said he doesn't judge. He has given all judgment over to the Son. And we need not read any further in this place than really verse 11 to see his power, to see his majesty. Where it says in verse 11, John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. And then he said, from whose presence, talking about him who sat upon this throne, whose presence earth and heaven fled from them, from him. No place was found for them. It's over. Please read with me. Verses 7 through 15. What a great, magnificent place. But it is a, it is a terrifying place for those who are really still wrestling with the fact if you're a believer or not. Verse 7, when the thousand years were completed, Satan is going to be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. He'll gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Then in verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, where the beast, excuse me, where the beast and the false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, whose presence the earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." Verse 14 says, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. The same place where it says in verse 8, is it? No, verse 10, where the devil and the beast and the false prophet were thrown as well. Terrifying place liberating place for those of us whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, but terrifying for those whom we love, um, those who we try to represent our faith to them, and they've just said no. Terrifying. So, I want to preach to you what is perhaps a real Southern Baptist type of message. It is hell and brimstone. And uh, Hold on. Hold on. Father in heaven, please, move me aside. When I say I want to preach, Father, I am not boasting. Please forgive me if that sounded like that, Lord. I, uh, I want you to be seen. You do as you so desire with us. If we need fire and brimstone, so be it. 
If you want to comfort us, you can do that as well, Father, I know, through this message. You will do as you see fit. I want to be out of the way so that you can minister to my heart and everyone's heart that's here. And Lord, we, we have the privilege of loving you. We have the privilege, Father, of praising your holy and righteous name. And with that, we give you such thanks. Here on this earth, Father, we, as an act of our own will, we, we, we say we love you. We desire, Father God, to please you today. Each of us will do that in different ways. Some, the Bible says, will give someone just a cold cup of water. Be sufficient. Others will do maybe different, more than that, and if, if there can be such a thing as more. And Father, we want to just please you. That's it. Live this day to please you. What a privilege. And so, Lord, uh, open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Teach us, Father. I pray this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Well, what do we see in verses 7 and 8? Well, Satan is finally loosed. And he deceives those who refused to believe in Jesus Christ during the millennium. He's successful. I mean, I mean the number of those he deceived are like the sands of the seashore, for crying out loud. For 1,000 years, think about it, for 1,000 years, Satan was unable to affect anyone. And immediately upon his release, he deceives, lies, and rebels against God because, as Jesus already said in John 8, 44, he's the father of lies, Satan is. And those that refuse to believe in Jesus Christ rebel with him. If you can even imagine, I can't. It's, it's, it's hard for me to comprehend it, but I get it. I get it, but it's hard. What, what does this show us? It just simply shows us that, that, that people following Satan after these 1,000 perfect years with Christ and them on the earth, that even under the best of conditions, we realize that our problem is not from outside influences. Not at all. Our problems is what Scripture teaches. They come from within our own hearts. Now I'm speaking to those of you, well I'm speaking to all of us, but not our problem for those of us who have trusted in Christ is not that we will, will not be able to be in heaven. Our, our problem is just the wrestling match that we do against Satan and against our own sin nature every day. But I'm talking about the people whose, unless their heart is transformed, there's no need to try to accomplish to be rehabilitated. Listen, Paul, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, that person, do you know what it says? That person becomes a what? A new creation, new creature. If anyone is in Christ, that person becomes a new creature. Behold, he says, old things have passed away, new things have come. I relate to that. I understand that verse because that happened in my life way back in, in March the 12th, 1973. By the grace of God, I became a new creature. And by the grace of God, 
I have grown in my walk with Christ. I am not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I have grown in my walk with Christ. When someone is in Christ, they become a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. That's a, that is, a, that is a, a, a purposed verse written within that Paul taught in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Unless you come to Jesus Christ, there is no hope for our fallen nature. But Paul taught as much. In Romans chapter uh, 3, verses 10, 11, and 12, Paul says it is written. What is it written? He says, or he writes, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none, he writes, who understands. There is none who seek after God. We've all, he says in verse 12, turned aside. Together we have become, he says, useless. There is none who does good. No, not one. What Paul is saying is that we are all in desperate need of a Savior. Desperate need of a Savior. Someone to free us from this body of sin. And Christ came to do just that for your life and for mine. Don't be deceived. Without Jesus Christ in one's heart, there is absolutely no hope. There is no other way to fight off sin and rebellion. And so this final rebellion against Jesus Christ proves the biblical truth that teaches us of our total depravity. Just as Romans 3, Paul wrote in, in verses 10, 11, 12, there's none of us who are righteous, not even one. There's none of us who understands, not even one. There's none of us who seek after God, no. There's none of us who do any good. Paul says not even one. In other words, he is saying that your and my, our goodness before God will not cut it. We must have Christ in our hearts. I don't know how much more clearly Scripture can make and, and, and point out the depravity of one's life without Jesus Christ. And the pure knowledge of this place that we are, this depravity, ought to drive us to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, which I'm assuming most of you have already done. Jesus told those who were investigating him when he was on this earth in John chapter 8, verse uh, 19. They were the self-righteous. They were the religious people of their day. They kept asking him, who are you? And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen my father, and all this, that, and the other. And they said, where is your father? And he said this in John 8, 19. He says, you neither know me, nor do you know my father. He said, because if you knew me, you would know my father also. But to place an emphasis upon what he was saying to these people, he says in verse 24 of that same chapter in the book of John, John chapter 8, he says, I have said to you that you will die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am he, Jesus says, you will die in your sins. 
Know carefully, when he says that in John 8, 24, there is no mention of them being good enough. No, there is no mention of the, where they go to church or what denomination they might belong to. He just purely and simply says, unless you believe that I am He, you're going to die in your sins. So what we are being taught here, pure and simple, in, Ro- in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8 and on, is that, is that the thousand-year reign of Christ, with, with folks who begin it with believers... We see that their offspring, just as you and I have been born with a sin nature, they must be born again, or they will ultimately rebel against God. Period. That's what this, that is what is taught here. No matter how good the circumstances we are born in, it doesn't matter. A person must give his heart, her heart to Jesus Christ. So this final rebellion of Satan and all those who have rejected Jesus Christ proves that once again that without our Lord, there's no hope. So Jesus says, as he said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you're going to die in your sins. And so in verse 8, Revelation chapter 20, Satan comes and deceives those who are like the number of the sand of the seashore. The words in verse 8, Gog and Magog, they just refer to all the nations, all the people on the earth. It's a symbolic reference to all mankind. As, as verse 8 tells us very clearly, they come from the four corners of the earth. And verse 9, how they gather together is not mentioned. Because I believe it's, it's irrelevant. It's, it's not the issue. The issue is they have gathered together. And the result, it's devastatingly simple. Stated at the end of verse 9, short and complete and to the point, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's it. That's the extent of the battle. We are told in verse 9 that they surrounded the camp of God's people, the saints, In the beloved city, most likely that was Jerusalem, but I don't know. And the same judgment that God placed upon Sodom and Gomorrah happens here. Fire devours them. Short, total destruction. Don't miss the point of verse 9. In one dramatic display of God's power, majesty, authority, judgment, He brings an end to the final rebellion of an unbelieving world that comes against him. With verse 10, we see the, the result for Satan. And in verse 15, we see the result of those who followed after Satan and his lies. And this is the end of the world as we know it. The archenemy of of mankind's soul, Satan, is thrown into a permanent home. Verse 10, the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are as well also. And it says, they're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. For the life of me, I cannot get my head around that thought. I can't. 
I try every once in a while to think forever and ever, tormented forever and ever. It never stops. I try every once in a while to gather myself to try to think through, what does that mean? And I can't. You mean the torment never stops? That's what it says. You mean it goes on forever and ever? That's what it says. And I cannot get my heart and my head around that. It used to scare me beyond a measure before I came to Christ. It came, it came so heavy upon me that I decided to believe that there was no God. That, that was my safe, that was my out. But I knew I was lying to myself. I knew I was. But it's the only way I could really exist. To think that if I were to die, I was going to be in hell forever and ever and ever. Couldn't get my head around it. In verse 10, we see that the beast and the false prophet are there are also. So we see the unholy trinity. Satan, the beast, and the, whole, and the false prophet burning in hell. A permanent place for those who reject Jesus Christ. To me, what more does someone need to see? What, what more does someone need to feel to turn from their sin and to turn to Jesus Christ? What more does God have to say? To see his power and his majesty, then, then we look at verse 11. John sees the white throne judgment seat of God, and he sees him who is sitting upon it, Jesus Christ. And then John says, I saw in verse 11, from him the presence of earth and heaven fled away. There was, there was no place found for them. In other words, this heaven and earth is no more. Can't find it. No place found for them. Daniel reported about this in a dream he had. He said, I kept looking until the thrones were set up, Daniel wrote in seven, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And the Ancient of Days, God, took his seat. His vesture, he says, was like white snow, and his, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire, Daniel wrote. In verse 10, he says, there was like a river of fire flowing from his throne. Thousands, he says, upon thousands were attending him. That's us. That's us. And then it says, myriads upon myriads. In other words, Daniel, like John, says, can't count them. Myriads, myriads upon myriads. He says, myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the books were open. In other words, judgment was going to come upon these folks that were standing there. I shudder over those who think they might reason with God at that time. You know, just kind of, kind of make him see their side of it, why they didn't come, you know, the pressures and all of that. Don't you dare be so brash as to think that you'll be able to reason with God. No. In verse 11, the heavens and the earth flee from him. In one simple statement, we see God's awesome power and authority. Now, verse 12 explains, Mike, um, I didn't get back to you on that, verse 5. The rest of the dead, in verse 5, are those who did not come to life, and now they do come to life, and now they stand before the throne to be judged. Verse 12 tells us that this is the second resurrection. Those who didn't rise in the first resurrection will be judged of the things that are written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. 
and, and it says in, in verses 12 and 13, they come from all walks of life, the great as well as the small. They come from the sea, from Hades, from death, all of that giving up the dead. No one, no one shall be excluded. No one's going to be able to hide and sneak through. And in verse 12, you note they are standing before the throne, which speaks of their being sentenced. Jesus Christ is now judging them out of the books. And they are being judged by what they did, if you'll note. Verses 12 and 13, both ends with, they are judged according to their deeds. What does that mean? Since they would not allow Jesus Christ to die for their sins, since they wished to come to God their way, by their own merit, whatever that might mean, they're going to stand and be judged by their deeds, their works of good. What, what are yours and my deeds that make us right before God? What, what can we do to appease Him? Look with me at John. Please, hold the, your place here. This I do want you to turn to. John chapter 6, please. And then we'll look, uh, after John, we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 16. But first, John chapter 6. The self-righteous are asking Jesus Christ. They follow, they're following him because they have seen him do miracles, but they also saw him feed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish from some lad. And so they're following after him for this physical food. He even says as much. Look at John chapter 6 and verse 26. He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, not because of the miracles I've done, no, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. In other words, you're seeking after me because I'm a walking McDonald's or whatever, and you, you can get food from me. He goes on to say in verse 27, don't work for the food which perishes. In other words, you eat and some time later you're going to be hungry again. No. He says, you work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. Then they ask him this question in verse 28. What shall we do? What is it that we have to do? so that we may work the works of God. What is it? What do you want from us so that we'll be right with God? And what does he say? In one succinct verse, verse 29, Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God. Goodness, folks, you ought to have this verse underlined in your Bible. Somewhere you ought to star this verse because this is what God is asking you to do so that you might be right with Him. This is the work of God. You've just got to understand this verse. Here it is, that you believe in Him who He has sent. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've got to believe in Me, Jesus Christ is saying. This is the work of God. Believe in Me. Trust in Me. You mean that's it? I mean, uh, don't I have to give to the poor? Don't I have, what, what do I have to do? Tell me more. I mean, just believe. That's it? That's it. That's the answer. What do I have to do to do the works of God? 
Believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, Jesus said, believe in me. Trust in me. I want to show you something that's an amazing parable. Luke chapter 16. Please turn there. It's to your left. Just a few pages. This parable is incredible. It's, it's about the, a rich man and a beggar by the name of Lazarus. Look, there was a certain rich man, verse 19 of Luke uh, 16. There's a certain rich man. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living a splendor every day. This guy's living high on the hog, I guess they would say. And also, in verse 20, there is a poor guy. His name is Lazarus, and he laid at the gate. He was covered with sores. He longed to be fed just with the crumbs that were following, falling down from the rich man's table. Beside that, I don't know why this is added, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. I mean, he's got it bad, this poor guy. came about, in verse 22, that the poor man died, that he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And, if you note, it says simply, the rich man also died and was buried. No carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Verse 23, in Hades, the, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus, the guy who had the, the sores and was very poor, in his bosom. And the rich man cried out in verse 24 and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Abraham shouted back to him and said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad, but now he is being comforted. You, you're in agony. And beside this, beside this, rich man, between us there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over here from where you are, they cannot. And for those of us who are here on the good side, we cannot cross over to you. Then he said these penetrating words. Then please, verse 27, I beg of you, I beg of you, send him to my father's house. I have five brothers. I want him to warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. That's a kind thing he's saying. Reach out to my family. Reach out to my five brothers. At least warn them, please. Please, I beg of you, send Lazarus there so that he might warn them. In verse 29, Abraham said, your brothers have Moses, they have the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, in verse 30. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will listen. Now I say listen because I wanted to try to trick you. I wanted to make you think. No, he doesn't ask that they might listen. He asks that they might do what? It is critical to this parable. It is That one word is critical to this parable. So that they might what? Say it, please. So they might what? Repent. 
You see, this rich man all of a sudden realizes there has to be a change in their attitude. They have to turn away from and turn towards to. That's what repent means. They have to turn from their sin and turn to God so that if someone would rise from the dead, they would repent. He's talking about Jesus. And Abraham answers in verse 31 and says to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. You see, the ultimate proof of who Jesus Christ is is mentioned in this parable. The ultimate proof of what we must do is not purely, merely listen, but repent. You see, I say every Easter that, that people come here and visit us, I say, for us, Easter's every week. That's the truth. That's the truth of what you and I believe. Every single day that we rise up in the morning, we can cry out, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Because we serve and love a risen Savior. He is alive. And in so doing, we too are alive because of what Christ has given to us. Our eternal souls are alive. But will they listen in this parable? No, nah, that's not the question, really. No, that, that parable was given so that it was given to you and me so that maybe would we listen? What about you? People, I beg of you. I beg of you from the very depth of my soul. If you've not come to Jesus Christ, come. May I say to you by the authority of the Word of God, that your good works, whatever it is you think you're doing, shall save you. Paul teaches clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, faith is. Not as a result of works, so that none of us might boast. Who can boast? Because their deeds they're doing good things can get them to heaven? No one. Clearly no one. Regardless of your religious affiliate, regardless of your good deeds, regardless of what denomination you belong to, no one is going to be able to stand before God on what they do. No, we all come through God's Son, Jesus Christ, or we don't come at all. That's, what, that's what's being taught in this great place in the book of Revelation. And we see in verses 12... And forward, there are two sets of books back in Revelation chapter 20. There are two sets of books. There is a book, singular, of life, and there are books, plural, of deeds. Once you come to Jesus Christ by faith, your name is automatically, permanently written in the Lamb's book of life. And you shall not be judged at the judgment seat. How do I know that? Why do I say that with such confidence? John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus Christ says, Truly, truly, he who hears my words and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. Note what Jesus says after that. And he will not come, she will not come into judgment, but they have passed out of death into life. You have life the moment you come to Christ. But... On the other hand, if your name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life, 
In verse 15, it says this, anyone's name who was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. And as verse 14 tells us, that is called the second death. An unbeliever who wishes to live without Jesus Christ here on earth shall do so eternally in a place called hell without God and without hope. We don't want that. Not for a soul. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Listen. Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that he cannot save you. Neither is his ear so dull that he cannot hear you. But he says in verse 2, Your iniquities, your sin has made a separation between you and God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he doesn't hear. Listen. Listen to your heart right now. Do you hear any kind of call within your heart? If you do, please don't put it off. Come to Jesus Christ. Turn from the sin of rejecting God's Son, Jesus Christ, so that He may forgive you of your sin and give you everlasting life. For those who refuse again and again and again, you can close your books. Just listen to me for a moment. I'm going to read to you out of Scripture, out of the book of Hebrews, the 10th chapter, the 26th through the 31st verse. verse. You might want to look at it later. But right now, I just want you to listen. Just listen. It's a terrifying statement for those who do not know the Lord. For those of us who do, it's liberating. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 26, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no hope. If you've, if you've listened and, and you just reject Jesus Christ, there's no hope. All that's left, it says in verse 25, is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume its adversaries. In the next verse, the writer of Hebrews gives an example of the law of God. And what he does is says, if, 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 if anyone who has set aside the law of Moses and, and dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, that, that's possible. But then he gives the other side. How much more, he says, severe punishment do you think that person will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has regarded as unclean the blood of His covenant, the blood that He shed for you. He says in verse 31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now I'm going to close in prayer, and, and, and some of the elders and pastors are going to come up here on the side, and if you want to come up and talk to us, you please feel free to. For those of you that don't need to and you want to leave, you may do that, of course just quietly, we want to give you a chance to hear that call and come, come to Christ. And then we want to help you grow. For those of us who know him, I mean, you know you're a believer. That's not an issue. This message is for us to grow in our faith. For those of you who have made a commitment to Christ, let me tell you, the things that you do for the Lord, they don't make you more a Christian. They don't they don't do any of that. I mean, let me give you the best example I know how. On March the 12th, no, on September the 14th, 
I married Kay Werhus. I asked her to be my wife. I counted a joy to love her. Um, I, I, I counted a joy to love her. And I do things for her the best I know how all the time. All the things that I do and all the love that I pour out to her does not make me more married to her. I'm as married to her as the day I asked her to be my wife way back then in 1973. We're still married. We will, by the grace of God, always be married. On March the, 14, March the 12th, 1973, I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. The things I do to love Him, the things I do to, to try to, to, to serve Him, none of those things make me more a Christian. Not one of them. I'm as much a Christian as I'm ever going to be when I asked Him into my heart. When I heard that call and I said, Yes, Lord. What I do for him is the same thing as for Kay. I just express my love to him by serving him. It doesn't win me any bounty points as far as I know. It, it's just the joy of my life to love my Lord. So those of us who are believers, serve him. Love him. It's not going to make you more a Christian, but it's sure going to give you a lot of blessings. That are that there's no way of telling you how your blessings are going to come. There's no way of me explaining what it's going to feel like because you're going to have to experience it. I can tell you what it feels like in my life, but that's irrelevant. I want you to experience it. I want you to feel it. And so if you want to come and, I don't know, you want to come and talk to the pastors, please do. Father, we want to close with a prayer of, of salvation, if there is such a thing, Father, that we might do, and that is to ask you to come into our heart and lives. Forgive us our sin. Make us the type of person that you've created us to be. Give us the joy of knowing that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and we will not come under judgment. Father, if there's someone here who's searching for you, please, please, Father, Wrestle with their heart. Don't allow them to leave without that sense of knowing you, trusting in you. And then, Father, allow us as a church to help them to grow as we grow in our faith and trust in you. Lord, I love the people of this church more than life itself. I thank you for the privilege of being here. Bless us all wherever you might take us today. And let us experience the joy of our salvation today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I love you all more than you'll ever know. Thank you for being here. See you next week. God bless you. Have a great day.